This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, a huge irony. In these days of electronic medical records and hospital IT systems, how actually having an extra person, other than the doctor, writing the notes can make medical care more efficient and safer too. How being born with a Y chromosome or two X chromosomes doesn't guarantee that a baby's sex is male or female. It's called sex reversal and Australian research has uncovered why this can happen. Trying to make sure lung cancer is diagnosed when it's curable and a popular technique used in in vitro fertilization and assisted reproduction has been shown not to make a difference to what's called the take-home baby rate. The trial into what's called an endometrial scratch was led by a group at the University of Auckland where Cindy Farkar is Professor of Obstetrics. I spoke to Cindy before we went to air on a rather scratchy line. Thank you. Just describe what this procedure is. An endometrial scratch is taking an endometrial sample or biopsy from the lining of the uterus. The word scratch has just become a popular way of describing it. but It's more of a punch. <laughs> yes. It's more of an injury, really, a small injury to the lining of the uterus. And it was a tiny little observation that launched years of this practice, which is quite a common story, unfortunately, in medicine. It is. So in 2000, 12 women, all of whom had had failed IVF before, and they had this endometrial sample taken to try and understand why they hadn't got pregnant, and 9 out of 12 of them got pregnant. And so it launched a whole lot of other studies and became more and more commonly used. How widespread was the practice of doing this uterine biopsy, this endometrial scratch, and what sort of money was it costing people? Well, we did a survey in Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom, and it was widely adopted, 70% of the clinics offering it. And charged um, for? And charged for. The amount for an endometrial sample can be as much as $500. But it's not without its side effects? not without some downside. The majority of them experienced some pain and that was during the procedure and some women went on to have further pain afterwards but we also called all the women the next day and asked them about bleeding and that was also quite common. When you're an infertility patient, you know, having an unscheduled bleed and having some pain like that, I think is something we'd rather avoid. So you did this randomised trial with nearly 1,400 women going through IVF they hadn't had a biopsy before. Some had scratching and some didn't. What did you find? This is a woman having a single IVF cycle with single embryo transfer, and the live birth rate for the woman who had the scratch was 26.1%. The live birth rate for the woman who didn't have the scratch was 26.1%. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but that sounds the same. <laughs> It was exactly the same when we calculated the proportion, so, yeah. <laughs> One of the trouble you can get in IVF, once you interfere with the reproductive system, is that you can get the egg doesn't want to be implanted in the uterus and could be implanted elsewhere, and the most dangerous place for it to be implanted is in the tubes, and it's called an ectopic pregnancy in the fallopian tubes. Did you get any increase in ectopic pregnancies, which can be life-threatening? We had three ectopic pregnancies in the endometrial scratch arm and three ectopic pregnancies in the control arm. So no difference there at all? No. So this goes into the rubbish bin of history? Yes. I mean, it was one study to start it. 
and I'm hoping one study to stop it. It's taken a while. They've been through something like 18 years. And the one good thing, I suppose, out of the study, apart from the fact that it's one less procedure that women need to have, is that if a woman should need to have a uterine biopsy as part of her investigation for another reason, for diagnosis, it's not going to make things worse for her, apart from the pain and bleeding. That is a good point. So what's next for debunking in in vitro fertilisation or Ah. assisted reproductive technology? We've We've had aspirin, we've had heparin. You've got hyperstimulation of the ovaries, and my understanding of that is that if you don't have that, you probably have a higher take-home baby rate. You've got frozen embryos, which seem to have a higher rate. You've got sperm injection, which doesn't, my understanding, give you, gives you higher conception, but no greater take-home baby rate. It sounds like there's a lot of stuff done in reproductive technology, which wastes money and time and doesn't get you very far. So there's quite a few other things to debunk, probably, although one wants to stand you know, with some degree of equipoise about it at the beginning. Are you suggesting my question didn't have equipoise, <laughs> Professor Fahua? Sort of puts a certain tone to it, perhaps. But I've been very interested in these studies about mitochondrial suicide activation, which is something that's being proposed at the moment. And I'm very interested to see the studies about endometrioreceptivity assays which we kind of synchronise the endometriums with the embryo development. So there's quite a few possibilities, and these are actually quite extensive tests. And if I can make another non-equipoise statement, you know, there's a, there's a cupboard there ready for some spring cleaning. Oh, yes, very much so. And I would just say to patients who are having IVF to save your dollars for something that's proven to be effective and try and not to spend it on things that, that um, probably aren't going to make any difference. So, Barb, beware and ask the right questions. Cindy Farquhar, thanks very much for joining us. And thank you very much for having me. Cindy Farquhar is Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at the University of Auckland. And you're with The Health Report here on RN, ABC News and CBC Radio across Canada. I'm Norman Swan. Lung cancer is common and deadly. Smoking is the commonest cause and all too often the tumour is diagnosed too late. Too late, meaning that surgery, the only curative treatment, isn't possible. One way of getting an earlier diagnosis is to do regular CT scans on heavy smokers, but that's controversial since the scans show up lumps which require costly interventions but which may never have turned into cancer. Another way is to help people with a history of heavy smoking to recognise the symptoms of cancer and come forward to their GP. That's what John Emery and his colleagues have tried to do. John Emery is Professor of Primary Care Cancer Research at the University of Melbourne. Welcome back to the Health Report, John. Thanks for having me again. So, John, one of the problems here is stigma, is it not? Indeed. So stigma is relevant at the point when patients present with symptoms. They often feel stigmatised, and that's part of the reason for why patients have often had symptoms for many months before they actually go and talk to a doctor about them. The stigma being that they fear they're going to be hauled over the coals for being a smoker and you deserve this, this sort of story. That's right. So that's certainly um, uh, one of the experiences of people who are either heavy smokers or past smokers who we know are at increased risk of lung cancer. Uh, They often feel that they're lectured when they go to talk to their doctor about new symptoms and that is part of the problem for later presentation to healthcare. Your approach here is can you detect it early and get people coming forward if if they know they've got symptoms earlier? 
That's right. So this was a targeted symptom awareness behavioural intervention in people who we knew are at higher risk of lung cancer. So similar to the sort of people who've been in the lung cancer screening trials. But so, this was an so heavy smokers, smoking 20 or more a day. These were people who had at least 20 pack years and were aged over 55. And what did you actually do? Raise awareness of symptoms and the personal relevance of symptoms and to emphasise the importance of early detection of respiratory disease. And you and others have shown that GPs and others tend to get focused on blood and blood in the sputum as being the cardinal sign of lung cancer. But in fact, there are other symptoms as well, which a lot of people don't recognise. That's right. Only about 20% of patients with lung cancer actually present with blood in the sputum. And often it's more subtle combinations of symptoms such as an increase in their cough or shortness of breath and an associated weight loss. And so that's what we were trying to raise awareness amongst these patients who were near at higher risk, prompt them to monitor their symptoms on a monthly basis, and then make an appointment to see their uh, GP if they notice changes in their symptoms. We really wanted to see whether we could impact this particular part of the uh, diagnostic interval, which is around patients presenting to their GP with symptoms suggested of lung cancer, which we know is, is a major contributor to the overall time to diagnosis. What did you find? We found that those who received this behavioural intervention, there was a 40% relative increase in consultations specific around their respiratory symptoms. So they weren't just turning up with the flu and saying, oh, by the way, doc, I've got uh, increased breathlessness and more sputum. No, that's right. This is a very specific effect. And what about the lag period? When you, you, know, you, you talk about people waiting, for example, an outpatient appointment, it's usually measured from the point where the GP puts in a request to the hospital to see the specialist. But they might have been sitting on the symptom for a year before that. Did you shorten the time that they had the symptom before they went to see the doctor? There was a non-significant reduction of 14 days from first symptom to first presentation. So that's not uh, much. It, it's not huge. And where's an, where's an increased rate of diagnosis? This was a trial of 551 patients in primary care. And over a 12-month period, there are only three people who would, were diagnosed with lung cancer, two in the intervention arm and one in the control group. So it was too so no small a number to know yeah, the answer right. to that. How long had they had the symptoms on average before they went to see the GP? On average, it was about 70 days. So we know that patients have these symptoms for quite a long time before they actually decide to see a doctor about them. So in summary, you know that if you teach people about the importance of symptoms in lung cancer, particularly about breathlessness, change in cough, change in symptoms, weight loss, then they will go and see the doctor. Have you got any ideas of how to shorten the time between the symptoms starting and them going to see the doctor? That's one of the unanswered questions. So do, did we need to be prompting them more often to monitor their symptoms? Did we need to emphasise that part of the intervention more? I think the point is that we know that patients often have multiple visits to their GP before they're referred on for a subsequent diagnosis of lung cancer. So even just increasing the number of consultations might ultimately lead to earlier investigation and an overall reduction in time to diagnosis. So do you think there's a case for CAT scanning screening of heavy smokers in Australia? Oh, well, that's the big question. The health economic analysis suggests that from an Australian perspective, it wouldn't currently be considered cost effective. There's the results of the Nelson trial that are still awaiting to be published, and that may lead to a sort of further review of the evidence and whether or not it's a, a cost effective strategy for a small proportion of the population who we know are at higher risk of lung cancer. This 
chest intervention might be an option for those people who are, wouldn't necessarily meet the risk threshold for CT screening, but for which earlier detection is still an important aim. And while, of course, there are still important approaches to try and support such people to make attempts to quit, we shouldn't be treating them with such stigma that they don't consult when they need to. John, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Norman. It's important to know that if you've been a heavy smoker and quit, the risk of lung cancer remains high for some years, so never ignore those symptoms. And as smoking becomes less common, non-smoking-related lung cancer is becoming more prominent. So it's fair to say no one should ignore new respiratory symptoms. John Emery is Professor of Primary Care Cancer Research at the University of Melbourne. Writing recently in The New Yorker, Atul Gawande, a Harvard surgeon and author who's actually been on The Health Report, wrote about the irony that as medical records have become electronic, doctors' workload has increased and their morale has fallen. Because while electronic records are essential in the complex jungle of modern medicine, they often require more time and effort than handwritten notes. Atul Gawande went on to describe a relatively new phenomenon proposed as a solution having a medical scribe on the ward and in a doctor's rooms to write the notes and do the paperwork in front of the patient. Well, an Australian study has trialled medical scribes, but in emergency departments. The study was led by Katie Walker, who's Director of Emergency Medicine Research at Cabrini Hospital in Melbourne. Welcome to the Health Report, Katie. Hi, Norman. So just tell me how doctors work at the moment without scribes and whether or not the, what Atul Gawande described in the New Yorker actually applies in the Australian context. Oh, it very much applies in the Australian context. We have very complex um, and multifaceted electronic medical records. We spend, uh, I don't know, five, eight minutes talking to a patient and then we leave the patient we sit down at a computer terminal and we spend a lot of time uh, writing medical notes but also um, doing clerical tasks like 20 mouse clicks and 20 fields to book a hospital bed or to order a test or to order a medication. We spend most of our time at computer terminals compared to um, face-to-face time with patients. So you, what you observe casually when you're in the emergency department and you've got that central pod of doctors, it's true, they're all sitting at the computer. And the busier we get, the, the more the waiting rooms are full, the more the doctors are typing furiously in the pod. Uh, we spend about 50% of our time entering computer data and another large chunk of our time finding people, information and things. And does it affect morale? Definitely. It's, it's so frustrating to be knowing that people are in distress in the waiting room that you can't get to them because you're filling in forms that's frustrating every day it creates chronic stress and and it's it's not a great scenario so tell me what you did in this study we evaluated the role of the medical scribe to see how it might uh, sit in australia we uh, trained a couple of cohorts of scribes at cabrini which is a hospital in melbourne And then we evaluated, once they were trained and competent, how they went in real life in a pragmatic study in our emergency departments. We went to five No, it wasn't just anybody you trained. These were medical students or pre-med students. Yeah, that's right. Um, A scribe is a a trained doctor's assistant. They're often starting a career in health like a pre-medical or medical student. And and that's right. But they need to go undergo quite specific training to be a scribe. They um, do some some knowledge, some book work, which takes between 30 and 100 hours. And then they have a couple of classroom days. And then they have an apprenticeship at the bedside, uh, which takes somewhere like 15, 16 shifts until they gain competency. And so they follow the consultant around. And what do they do? 
Yeah, they're mobile administrative assistants for the doctors. They're um, essentially following the doctor for the entire day with a computer on wheels that's got Wi-Fi enabled uh, electronic medical record access. And as the doctor works and communicates verbally, the scribe is, is translating that into medical records. Or so the doctor's the saying, I'm, I'm feeling the abdomen now and it's all normal or there's an enlarged spleen and I'm listening to the heart and there's no murmur. They're, they're, so, the, so the doctor doing this yeah, has got to learn a little how to more than that. Right. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. The doctor has some training as well, but they say, look, I see you're a little tender here and the scribe knows that that's the right iliac fossa. And gee, I see that you're super tender when I press here and when I lay go it hurts more and the scribe is trained to interpret that into rebound and guarding or whatever the physical finding might be. But they also order tests and they do the the, the bureaucratic stuff. Uh, look, they're not licensed to sign off tests, but they populate tests for the doctor to sign. And then the, it's not just enough to order a test, you have to facilitate it. So in order to get an ultrasound, you've got to not only tell the patient, the family and the nurse that you want it, but then you've got to order it and then you've got to make it happen. You've got to call in the sonographer, you've got to tell the porter, you've got to tell the nurse, the nurse in charge, uh, you've got to ring and ask for a report. They'll do all of that. The doctor's the decision but maker. this is what I used what to do when I was a resident. I'm as a junior doctor. <laughs> That's just right. it we don't have um, our, our residents and interns in emergency medicine see their own patients. Uh, we don't have people who do that for us. The emergency physician who's spent a decade or more training um, and is supposed to be um, supervising and, and doing everything else that needs to get an emergency department running is actually standing there filling in forms. So what, did, it's crazy. what difference did it make having the scribe? Now, you, so, now, it should be said, Cabrini's a private hospital, so you did this in public hospitals as well, presumably? We, we did purposive recruiting. We, um, we had Cabrini as a private tertiary not-for-profit emergency department. Uh, we also uh, sought a me metropolitan side of Dandenong, uh, Monash Children's Hospital at Clayton, uh, the Austin Hospital for uh, Tertiary City Medicine, and then we were delighted that Bendigo joined us as a regional referral centre, so four, four public, one private. Uh, so we found that doctors see 25% more patients, that patients spend 19 minutes less in the emergency department, uh, that scribes are safe and that the intervention is cost-effective, in fact, strongly cost-effective for the hospitals. Gosh, I mean, that's, these are quite considerable. And did, and did the doctors like having a scribe there or did they feel... The doctors loved it. Scribes are great. We we did a separate study, not the one you're talking about with this program, but we evaluated exactly that. Doctors feel less stressed. They're happy picking up more complex patients. They go home on time and they don't go home tired. At the moment, most doctors try and see patients as furiously as they can. They do not like people waiting. And so they batch the notes for anyone that's not being admitted. They stay after their shift and they, they write they notes afterwards. Which means they could forget stuff. Well, they forget stuff and they're also just exhausted. With the scribe, they largely go home on time, although we weren't able what, to um, document that in this study. And what about patients? Did they like it? Yeah, we did a separate study for that. And what we found is no matter which direction we measured it in, the patients just trust that they're part of the healthcare team um, and, and they don't mind. They, they either don't notice or they don't mind. There's no change in press gainy scores, net promoter scores in feelings about crowding or ability to give private and sensitive information to the doctor. It was indetectable in blinded studies whether the scribe was in the room or not. So the admin at Cabrini's bringing on medical scribes, are they? We would love to see that happen. We've just finished <laughs> the study 
Um, so we've done the research and we, we hope to move to the operational phase uh, for scribes at Cabrini. Look, it's cost efficient. I, I would ask the question how hospitals, including our public hospitals, could afford not to implement scribes. It, it had um, really some outstanding results in, in performance, productivity, um, time-based uh, key performance indicators. Patients don't mind, doctors love them, and scribes, our young scribes, are going to be our healthcare workers of the future. They get a paid meaningful work while they're accessing bedside clinical apprenticeships at the side of our emergency physicians. It's, it's hard to, imata, uh, to imagine uh, an intervention that's got more wins. It's almost comforting that the, these IT systems require more humans. Katie, thank you very much for joining <laughs> Isn't us. It? Associate Professor, Associate Professor Katie Walker is Director of Emergency Medicine Research at Cabrini in Melbourne. Sex reversal is a term for a baby, child or adult who often has the chromosomes of a female, say two X chromosomes, but has the external features of a male or is genetically a male, XY, but has female features like ovaries. There are various causes, but what happens at a genetic level has been a bit of a mystery. Now research at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute has found that it may not be the actual genes which are at fault, but what's been called junk DNA or dark DNA on chromosomes. Andrew Sinclair leads the team which made the discovery and is in our Melbourne studio. Welcome back to the Health Report, Andrew. Hi, Norman. So I, I got that right, the description of sex reversal. How common is it? Absolutely. Well, look, it varies as a spectrum. So it really varies from about 1 in 4,000 children right up to 1 in 20,000. There's a spectrum of conditions where you get the complete sex reversal that you described and a 1 in 4,500, which is ambiguous genitalia. So more common than you think. Now, you've specialised in the Y chromosome in this particular gene called the SRY gene, which I think you might have discovered. Yes, uh, 28 years ago. 28 years ago. It's a long, <laughs> long time between drinks. <laughs> Just describe what, what, you know, the, problem, the question you've been asking and what you've done. Sure. So the Y chromosome, as you said, carries that critical gene SRY, which acts on another gene called SOX9 that causes the development of the testis in the early embryo. So once you've got high levels of SOX9 gene, that's what's required to build the testis and drive the embryo down a male pathway. And if you don't have that SRY gene, then you don't get high... The females have SOX9, but they don't get the high levels of it. So SOX9 is so not then, on the Y chromosome? No, it's not. It's on what we call an autosome. And if you've got low levels of SOX9, then you, then you just get um, ovarian development. So if there's some disruption to that SOX9 activity in some way and you get the low levels, then you don't get a testis developing and you can have a baby that's XY that would be sex reversed. That's sort of the, where we started from. But we know that these coding genes like SRY and SOX9, and there's about 20,000 of them. And I should just explain in, here, a coding gene is a gene that codes for a protein that has an action. Right. Um, and when you talk about genomic, you know, genomic sequencing, mostly it's of the exome, which is all these coding genes. So, there's, right. so there's this coding part of the genome, and there's a non-coding part, what people call dark DNA or, non, or junk DNA. And what it's worth remembering is, although we know a lot about the coding genes, they only take up 1.5% of the human genome. As little as that, 1.5%. Right. 98.5% of the whole genome is dark matter or junk DNA. And that doesn't contain genes, but it, it carries these important regulators that increase or decrease gene activity. So, so, those, they're, those, so they're like the volume switches on an amplifier. Exactly that, yeah. So those regulatory segments that sit in the dark matter are called enhancers. 
So if those enhancers that control the testis genes were disrupted in some way, this is what we figured would happen, then you might get a baby uh, being born with sex reversal. So we screened um, a large number of, of patients with sex reversal, about 44 in total. And out of that 44, we found four of those patients that had overlapping duplications or deletions upstream of the SOX9 coding gene. So these duplications and deletions occurred in the dark matter upstream of SOX9. So it sounds complicated, but it's actually quite simple. So if you've got duplications, then you've actually got more of the enhancer. And if you've got deletions, you've got less of the enhancer. I mean, that's crudely. Exactly, exactly right. And we found in those in that overlapping region, in those duplicated and deleted regions, three little enhancers. And one of those enhancers responded very well to the SRY gene and caused a slight increase in SOX9. And then it combined with the other two enhancers to further increase SOX9 to much higher levels. So they acted synergistically and they were widely separated across that dark matter. So in order to come together, they had to form a three-dimensional structure to come and form this new complex that then drove high levels of SOX9 um, in a normal individual. Which is, why, in, which is why when you don't have the SRY, when you're a girl, when you're female, and uh, the, but, the, but the enhancers are boosted, then you get this artificial boosting of this gene which will make you, um, which will turn your ovaries into testes. Exactly. And the converse of that, if there's a deletion there and you don't have those um, enhancers, any one of those three enhancers actually, not all three, if any one is lost, then you don't get high enough levels of SOX9 a testis doesn't develop and you can develop ovaries uh, even though you have XY chromosomes. So do you know what causes these deletions or, or duplications? So these are, these are, ran these are, these are random events um, and we pick them up using microarrays. But it's really interesting that this is just one gene that we know reasonably well. And there are, as I said, 20,000 genes in the genome and they all have many of these enhancers and regulatory sequences. So this could happen in cancer, for example. It could happen in all sorts of genes in, and affect all sorts of conditions. So I think it points to the complexity of the human genome and how much more we need, we need to understand. We've only really scratched the surface with that 1.5% of coding genes. Can you intervene with these enhancers or is there some way of affecting them? Well, potentially you could. I mean, there are there are um, people who are who are thinking about those sorts of approaches for particular conditions, um, but that's very very early early days yet. I mean, I think what this study shows us is the complexity of the genome, and that how these are very very tiny little fragments of the genome itself, and when they're just one one is missing, it can cause something um, as dramatic as sex reversal. But from my point of view, it's also joined the missing link. As I said, uh, SRY was discovered 28 years ago. This now t tells us how SRY acts. We haven't known that for 28 years in humans. We now know that it binds to one of these little enhancers that upregulates SOX9 that drives male development. So that's, that's quite an achievement as well. Now, it's, it's sometimes really difficult to make the diagnosis in these babies when their sex is either indeterminate or it, you know, there's, there's something going on and you can get onto a diagnostic roundabout, which is very hard. Is it, is it mm. easy to actually know, well, easy is the wrong word, but can, does this help tell parents what's going on? It certainly does. So we, we implemented using genomic strategies, so sequencing lots of genes. In fact, we look focused at about 68 different genes that are potentially associated with sex reversal. And we've implemented that at the Royal Children's Hospital through the Victorian Clinical Genetic Service. And we have boosted diagnostic rates from 13% to 43%. So our clinicians say that on average, that's uh, improved clinical man management in about a third of cases. So yes, it's had a big impact 
And for the families themselves, uh, it's something they can hang on to. Before that, they've got this nebulous condition and they can't really put a label on it. But naming it is very important from their, um, from their um, point of view. And can you pass this on? I mean, does, if you've got this enhancer problem, can you pass it on to your children? So in other words, uh, look, do these do children who may not necessarily have intersex, but do, do they carry it and then pass it on? Some of these, most of these cases are de novo, but there are instances where you, it is passed on and sometimes uh, in, in a particular environment that, that that enhancer might find itself in if it's even duplicated. It doesn't cause the sex reversal in others, it does, but that's uh, rarer. It's, it's mainly de novo conditions that we, we see this. Andrew, well done. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Norman. Andrew Sinclair is Deputy Director of the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. You've been listening to The Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.